We're so glad you guys are here today. If you could do me a favor, if you want to go ahead and uh, open up in your scripture to Joshua chapter 9, we'll be there in just a few minutes. Uh, Before we do, uh, you guys are probably like Amy and I, you've been just captivated by what's going on in the Ukraine and these images of families just being completely displaced and certainly just watching children uh, stripped from their homes has been heart-wrenching. So, so many people have asked, how can we be involved as a church? And so we want to put this QR code up there for you. If you want to take a picture of that, that's a great thing. This is something that the SIN Network is doing. The SIN Network is uh, one of our ministry partners. The SIN Network is the largest church planning organization in North America. For instance, uh, with our Boston church plant, with Salt Lake City church plant that we're involved in, that's the organization that we work uh, through. Uh, They are uh, a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. They have just unbelievable logistical support worldwide and assets worldwide. And so you have a chance to go uh, to the website here, and there's a chance, uh, there's a prayer guide there, but there's also a chance to give. It's very simple. We did it on Friday night in just about three minutes, uh, $25, $50, $75, and that money's going to for some food, uh, water, uh, diapers for children, all these things of families that have been displaced. So I just hope uh, today as a church that we'll take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, there are churches all over the country that are doing the same thing uh, today, right now, even as we speak uh, for these folks that are in need. So thank you for being open to that. Uh, we're going to jump into uh, Scripture today in, in this study of Joshua. Uh, we find ourselves at a very uh, interesting point in the story. One of the greatest miracles in Scripture is found in our text today, but hopefully we're going to understand a little bit more about the backstory. We're going to talk about commitment today because it's just all over the text. But uh, for some of you, maybe it's your first time to be with us in a long time. Let me just take 30 seconds and tell you where we are in the story. Moses, who had led the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt and through uh, the 40 years of wandering, has died. The children of Israel are now under the leadership of of Joshua. Uh, They have come into the land that God promised all the way back to Abraham a thousand years before Moses. They've crossed over the Jordan River. They are beginning to take possession of the land that God has given them. There are fortified uh, city-states that are there uh, that they are called to drive out. And so they've already been successful with the first battle in the city of Jericho, next in the city of Ai. And then last week, Because of what God was doing, uh, one of the people groups living in the land that the children of Israel were supposed to drive out were a group known as the Gibeonites. They were aware of the power of God, and so they deceived Joshua and said they were from a long way away when actually they were living in the land because they knew, the Gibeonites knew, that Joshua could not uh, come into any type of an agreement or partnership with anybody living in the land. He was to drive them out, so they deceived Joshua. Joshua makes a foolish decision, and can we just all agree that everybody in this room has made a foolish decision, right? This week, you know, that's just a part, part of, part of our, our life. Joshua makes a foolish decision, but we're, what we're going to see, he doesn't compound that foolish decision. We're going to see how he keeps his core commitment and how God blesses in just a powerful, powerful way. So let's pick up in Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. Uh-oh. Right shortly after Joshua, this great leader leading over 2 million Hebrews, realized he's been deceived and he made a mistake. 
Foolish decision. So the Israelites set out on the third day and came to their cities, the cities of the Gibeonites, and it, it lists, lists those. And why was Joshua doing that? Maybe he's just angry and frustrated and, and wanted to kind of get to the bottom and understand why the deception took place. Verse 18, but the Israelites did not attack them. So they didn't attack the, Isra- the, the Gibeonites, even though the Gibeonites deceived them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. So Joshua realizes he'd made a commitment, and he is keeping his commitment. Now, uh, this is not popular. It says at the bottom part of verse 18, the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. And so we're going to see many times we keep our core commitments. Not everybody around us uh, is going to be happy with that. They may not be, may not be popular. It certainly wasn't in, in Joshua's situation. Verse 19, but all the Israelite leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, or we've given them our word. We've committed to them, the Lord God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. Verse 20, this is what we will do to them. We will let them live. In other words, we will keep our commitment so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. I mean, Joshua has this understanding that maybe one of the most fearful things that he can do in his life is break a commitment that he'd made to the Lord. That's what he's saying there. This is a, this is a powerful, powerful story. In verse 21, they, they continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. And now I understand this is a mistake I make every week. I'm always uh, more ambitious with my time and what I'm trying to do in the sermon than, than you guys are interested in listening, but that's okay. So one of the things about the Gibeonites, if you study scripture, Joshua says, we're, we're not going to kill them. We're going to make them servants in the house of the Lord, which was the greatest thing Joshua could do uh, for them. The scripture says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And the Gibeonite story is, is, is that story. What happens is they are serving uh, later in the tabernacle and in the temple. They fall as a people group deeply in love with the God of Israel. We see their story really just grow. The, the city of Gibeon becomes a priestly city. In other words, were trained, they were training and growing up priest. It's where the Ark of the Covenant during the time of King David stayed more than any other place. So we see how God is redeeming that. Even if you fast forward the narrative of the children of Israel, when they come back from their captivity in Babylon under King, um, uh, under Nehemiah, under Nehemiah's leadership and Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, it's the Gibeonites who are very involved in that. All that to say how God redeems really this, this, this pagan group of people. And they become a part of the story, right? Now, let's look on at chapter 10. That was all just free on the Gibeonites, by the way. So you just, you're, you're welcome. Here we go. Starting in Joshua chapter 10, look on down at verse 6. Here's what's happening in the first five verses. There were five city-states in the land of Canaan, a group of people referred to as just the Amorites. We'll, we'll get into a little more detail about them. They hear about the Gibeonite deception. You see, the Gibeonites were a part of, of, of this alliance that was going to battle against Joshua and the children of Israel. So when this group of five city-states hear about the Gibeonites cutting a deal with the Israelites, they surround them. These five pagan kings surround them and are going to destroy the Gibeonites. So that's where we pick up in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 10. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, back where Joshua is, do not abandon your servants. Hey, Joshua, don't forget about us. Come up to us quickly and save us, help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Can you imagine, oh, Joshua, Joshua make a foolish decision, he keeps his commitment, and then no sooner does he get back home, and that foolish decision comes calling, right? Going to need some help here, bro. Don't forget about us, remember what you promised. 
promised your God, and so we need to bring you and your God to uh, overcome these enemies that are surrounding us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including his best fighting men. Joshua keeps his commitment. It's a courageous decision. Verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Here's one of the things we're going to see over and over and over again. If you don't get anything else from this text, get this. God blesses the commitment of his people. And God blesses Joshua's commitment in a supernatural way. And he says, Joshua, I'm going to fight for you. Don't have to be afraid here. I've already given these enemies into your hand. Now, verse 9, after an all-night march from Gilgal. I love that. You might want to underline that, that phrase, all night. Because anytime I think we start to struggle spiritually, we might say, I'm struggling spiritually. What does that mean? Struggling spiritually can mean this, that we've delayed obedience. In other words, God called us to something and we just kind of delay on that. Joshua doesn't delay. Like if it was me, if they would have called, I'd have said, hey, don't get a good night's sleep. We'll, we'll head out first thing tomorrow morning. Joshua doesn't do that. He just heads out immediately. He marches all night long with his army, which would have put his army, by the way, in a deficit position, right? When you march all night long and then you got to start battling as soon as the sun comes up, that puts you in a deficit position. But he knows they're not in a deficit position because they have the power of God uh, with them. Now, after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise, took these five uh, city-states, these five pagan Amorite kings by surprise. Verse 10, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So they understand this, that God is starting, he's fighting for them. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon, these five city-states. They were going to be five individual battles God, that Joshua was going to have to fight. God puts them all together in one place, and, and, they, and they defeat all of them. Israel pursued them along the road going down to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Ezekiel and, and Macadai. Have you ever, have you ever seen? Um, I know we're, we're we don't in, in endorse bullying in any way. Not 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 that. But back in the day when I, I was growing up, and if a guy was uh, you know had been bullied, and then all of a sudden he he fights back, and then when he gets a little bit of victory, he gets ten foot tall and bulletproof. He starts running his mouth. He starts chasing somebody down, and he feels confident, right? In that maybe a bad illustration. You see that the children of Israel are super confident. They've just seen God work, and now they're on the pursuit uh, after to completely destroy the Amorites. Verse eleven. Some of you will send me an email. Pastor Brady, I didn't like that illustration. We don't teach that in our home. Sorry. Verse 11. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Haran, Zeke of the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. This is interesting. God is fighting for the children of Israel. Listen to what it said. And more of them, meaning these pagan Amorite kings, more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Now, I'm going to take a risk here. I'm going to stop right now, and I want to try in some ways to deal with the elephant in the room. Because for many of you, it's a real problem in your mind to have this thought that God is calling his covenant people to kill another group of people, to destroy another group of people. That's a real, that's a real problem for so many people. I understand that. I want to stop and deal with that for a moment, and then we'll get back to the rest of the story. Is that okay? You know, we, we, we live in a culture today where everybody has doubts, right? Doubt is not an enemy of faith, right? 
truly doubts, if they're handled the right way, can really accelerate our faith. And so I want to deal with these doubts. Many people are deconstructing their faith or walking away from the faith because they have questions that nobody's really taken the time to try to help them answer, not assuming that I'm going to answer this question. But for many people, it's a real issue for them in their faith journey to see God in the Old Testament calling the children of Israel to do something like this. So let's, let's take a look at it, right, in context. I want to take you back. In order to do this, I want to take you back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant, an agreement, a promise with Abraham, who's going to be the patriarch, the father of faith, uh, the father of the nation of Israel. Now, here's something I want to say before we read this passage, please. And I know this, this may be a little bit boring for some of you, but, but some of you have had some real questions here, right? This has been a, an issue for you. Abraham lived a thousand years before Moses. That's a long time, right? Joshua lives after, he follows Moses. So this is about 1,100 years after God makes this promise. In Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham that he's going to be the father of a great nation. He tells him about a land that he and his people are going to go into and inhabit. God even tells them that there will be 400 years of slavery. He's talking about what's going to take place in Egypt 1,000 years before it takes place. That's interesting, isn't it? And then we pick up in verse, isn't that interesting? Right, that's pretty fascinating. That's either a crazy coincidence or God is who he says he is. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, now this is talking about the time of Joshua that we're looking in, looking at today. He says to Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, talking about this land of Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites, that's the people who are inhabiting this land right now that Joshua is called to drive out, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, what does that, what does that mean? God understands the sinfulness of these, these people that are living in this land that he's called Joshua and the children of Israel to drive out. By the way, can I say this? The piece of property, the land of Canaan, the land of modern-day Israel, is about the size of the state of Rhode Island right? There isn't another time after this, after Joshua and the children come in and drive the inhabitants out of the land that God calls the children of Israel to do that, right? They don't even have, in many cases, a standing army after that. But there's something special that God is doing through these, this people and this place, right? And so he says, he says, it's going to be a while before the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure, meaning there's going to be a time of grace, a time for people to repent, a time for these sinful people living in the land to repent and follow uh, the, the, the God of the children of Israel. And in fact, it happens, right? One of the first characters that we meet in the story of Joshua, when Joshua comes to uh, the spies, come to the city of Jericho, is a prostitute named Rahab. She was a part of these Amorite people, pagan people that saw the power of the living God after all God had done in Egypt with the Red Sea, with what happened in the crossing of the Jordan River. And, and so she sees that and she yields or she submits to that God. In fact, it's exactly what's happening with this group of people that we're studying about today, the Gibeonites. They cut a deal. They, they deceive Joshua. They cut a deal. Why? Because they want to be a part of this covenant family. They understand the power of this God. And, and they want to come under his protection. But there was going to come a time, and that's what the book of Joshua is about, when God was going to deal with the sin of the Amorites, meaning it will have reached its full measure. So let's talk about them for just a second. You guys still with me? Those of you who still are? Who were they? What does history tell us about these people? 
Well, history is not very kind when talking about the Amorites. What they are known for most, number one, is rampant incest. Second thing that they're most known for is child sacrifice. One of the ways that the Amorites would worship the God of Molech is, is, is they would throw these children, it's even hard to talk about, throw these children into the flames alive where they would be burned alive as a way of worshiping their God. They were known for just gross sexual immorality, just perversion beyond anything that we could think about. They were known for witchcraft and, and mutilation. So these were a wicked, wicked group of people. And finally, as Joshua was moving into the land, the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a forever too late. Finally, God is going to deal with this sin. Now, let me just ask you, because still some of you, well, that's a problem for some of you. Let me say this. I wonder if this happened in our city. It's even hard to talk about. In our city, I wonder if a story was taking place this week where a child was sexually, a young child sexually abused over and over again, and then her parents just uh, murdered her just in a violent, violent way. We would be screaming for what today? We would be screaming for justice. You better believe it. We would be screaming for justice. To not enact justice with the people who perpetrated this would mean that in many ways none of our children are safe. Right? We'd be screaming for, for justice. And so finally, God deals with the sin of the Amorites. Do you see that? And it, it brings up another point that is true whether we like it or not. There will always be a forever too late for anybody who lives with a sense of, of rejecting the living God. There will be a forever too late when judgment will come and it will be final. Um, someone came up to me Thursday night and, and said, you know what, you're... Uh, he said, I, and he was trying to be nice. He said, don't take this personal. Isn't it, whenever somebody says don't take it personal, they're about to have a, it's about to be a personal attack, isn't it? Like, how else could I take, you're talking to me. Who else could take this? He said, you know, you're just, you're just always yelling and screaming and talking about, about he said this, talking about hell, everybody's going to hell. First of all, I don't think I talk about that every week. But anyways, we'll give you that. Um, it would be an exceedingly unloving thing for somebody like me to do to never talk about the judgment of God, Right? It exists whether you realize it or like it or not. And if you live your life rejecting the grace and the mercy of God, there will come a day, there will be a forever too late, right? And the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure during the time of Joshua. And God is, let me just say this, whether you, some people say, well, I just don't, I just don't like a God like that. Well, that is such an arrogant statement in my opinion. Right? And I'm trying to be loving and gracious, and I want to be. And I understand doubt. I do understand. I, I get it. I've wrestled with doubt in my life. But, but that is just assuming you know everything there is to know about a circumstance and a situation, and we just don't. And what God is doing is perfectly just. Right? To let a grouping of people, this vow, continue to go on in that would be very unjust, I believe. Does that make sense? All right. I wanted to, I wanted to do that. Now I, I need to get back to the story. Um, after the last service, there was a guy who was a guest. He said, I was in town. He said, thank you for doing that. That has really confused me for a lot of years, and thank you for taking the time to do that. So if there was only one person today that got something out of that, then that, that's kind of all I needed. Now we're ready to get back to the story? Right. All right, Joshua chapter 10, verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, 
sun stands still over Gibeon and moon over the valley of Ajalon. In other words, what's taking place? I mean, Joshua realizes that God is fighting for the children of Israel, that they are being victorious in battle. These five enemies are being destroyed in one day. And, and, and Joshua says, sun stands still because we realize when the sun goes down, the battle ends and he doesn't want the sun to go down. Have you ever had a day with the people you love and the place you love doing something you love and you just thought, I don't want this day to end? Yeah. Joshua said, I don't want this day to end. And he literally calls out to God, God, is there any way for the sun to stand still? What you're about to see, this is the longest day in the history of the world. God responds to Joshua's request. Verse 13, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation of Israel avenged itself on its enemies. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Now think about this, Joshua and the children of Israel had traveled all night, up all day, traveled all night, fought all day. The day wasn't a 24-hour day, the day was a 48-hour day. So these, these guys have been up 72 hours. That's quite a time, right? But they didn't want the day to end because they were in the presence and the power of the living God, and they were seeing God bring victory after victory. Verse 14, I love this verse, there has never been a day like it before or since a day when the Lord listened to human beings. That doesn't mean that God doesn't listen to us, but the point is that God reacts and responds in just such a supernatural way. And some people say, well, I don't believe stuff like that in the Bible, that the sun stood still. Like, I, 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 trust, I trust science. And that, I mean, there's all these ramifications for the sun standing still throughout the day that just can't happen. I mean, you've got to be pretty dull to believe something like that. And I, and I, I, I appreciate the thought. And, and, and I, I just tell you what I believe. I believe our God created everything that exists out of nothing. That's what the Word said. And I believe, I believe stranger things than this, to be honest with you. I believe God can do anything and everything that He wants to do whenever He wants to do it. And that's just what, that's what I believe. Right? And you say, well, well I, think about, I think about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Three days in the grave, He steps out of the grave victorious over sin and death. God can do whatever He wants to do whenever He wants to do it. That's who He is. And you see that lived out. Right? And so... We see a powerful movement of God. Now, let's take about 15 minutes if we could. I want to try to keep my commitment to you because if I'm preaching on commitment, I need to keep my commitment, right? But let's talk about it because I think commitment's in short supply today. I, I think it's probably a topic we need to talk about in the church about as much as anything. Rick Warren says this about commitment. Let's throw this up on the screen. It's a great quote. Your, commitment can, your commitments can develop you or destroy you, but either way, they will define you. Nothing shapes your life more than the commitments you choose to make. Do you believe that's true? The commitments that you make are going to develop and define you, right, in every area of our life. I mean, your life and my life in many ways is a sum total of the commitments that we make and the commitments we keep, right? I mean, my body would look a lot different if I'd made different commitments about what I eat and how I take care of myself, right? It wasn't funny, but you're laughing. So we have relational commitments that are super important for us to keep. We have professional co commitments with our word in the, in the marketplace that are important. We have spiritual commitments that are important for us to keep. And those, those commitments will define us in our life. But let's look at the fine print of commitment today for just a few minutes that we see from this scripture. It's really an important lesson on, on commitment because I think one of the reasons that, that we struggle with it is we don't fully understand it. So what does it mean to keep a commitment? What does it look like? First of all, keeping your commitment will take courage. You need to understand that. Keeping your commitment is going to take courage. That's certainly the case with Joshua, right? If we go back and look at his, his story in verse 18, 
the whole assembly. You have two million people grumbling against the decision he's making, but he courageously keeps his commitment. That takes courage. He has to march all night and go to battle with five other city-states. That takes courage to do that. Keeping your commitment takes courage. And in life, let me say this, in your life and in my life, we will either keep our commitments or we will yield to our fears. I may even say another way, we either keep our commitments and yield to, or yield to our, our flesh, our old nature. Now, please listen to what I'm about to say because if you don't hear this, it'll be so confusing and it'll just it'll mess you up. This isn't a message that the desire is for you to leave and say, you know what, I need to try harder to keep the commitments that I've made. You and I don't have the motivation and the power to keep the commitments that we've made. Um, it's really a byproduct of the Lord Jesus coming alive in us when we understand, first of all, the commitment that He's made to us, and then as He begins to change us from the inside uh, out, then we begin to have the power and the ability to keep these commitments. Charles Spurgeon, who's one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, if you're watching online, listen to this. He said, you never hear Jesus say in Pilate's judgment, in other words, as Jesus is uh, going through this, this, this trial on Good Friday with Pontius Pilate. You never hear Jesus say in Pilate's judgment, judgment hall, one word that would let you imagine that he was sorry that he had undertaken so costly a sacrifice for us. When his hands are pierced, when he is parched with fever, his tongue dried up like a shard of pottery, Spurgeon said. When his whole body is dissolved into the dust of death, you never hear a groan or a shriek that looks like Jesus is going back on his commitment. What do we see? We see that the Lord Jesus on the cross was fully committed to you and to me. Would you agree with that? That motivates us to grow in our commitment to him because I think cowards break foolish commitments while the courageous keep them. But in this story, the rules change. I mean, it's not so clear cut. I mean, you can make a case like Joshua. Hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. They lied to you. They deceived you. And some people around Joshua might have said, hey, Joshua, all's fair in love and war. But Joshua realizes it doesn't make sense to break a foolish commitment. Because think about this. Breaking a foolish commitment, it never really solves a problem, does it? Think about it. I mean, your grandmother was right when she said two wrongs don't make a right. Isn't that true? One of our staff members told me this story. I don't know if it was about his son or about another kid. It sounds like it might be about his son. He said, well, we got in trouble in school, and the, and the, teacher, and the teacher said, uh, hey, what did you promise me yesterday? He said, I promised you I'd behave. And she said, what did I promise you? He said, well, you promised me that if I misbehave, you'd send me to the principal. And she said, that's right. He thought for a minute. He said, wait, wait a minute. Since I broke my promise, I'm fine if you break yours as well. <laughs> you see, that, that's kind of how we are, sort of two wrongs don't, don't make right, but in this story with Joshua, he, he, he makes a foolish decision. But even in the midst of that, he still keeps his core commitment. And it could be an unwanted pregnancy from a foolish decision, but the courage and the commitment to keep the child. It could be entering into a marriage relationship and you were young and, and maybe didn't, didn't make it on the, the, the best grounds, but you've committed to someone and you're keeping that because two wrongs don't make, don't make a right. Joshua shows us that. It takes courage to keep these commitments. And, and, and the courageous keep commitments even when the circumstances have changed. Let's talk about that. That's exactly what happens with Joshua. He's deceived, but he keeps his commitment even when the circumstances have changed. Can I say this? Like professionally in our, in our, in our, in our professional life, 
I've heard this over and over again with people being upset with folks who haven't kept their commitment. We might say, well, prices have increased, so that's, uh, you know, that's why I'm going to break my promise on the deal. We're just walking away from our word, walking away from our commitment, and it hurts us. In marriage, I didn't know he'd be so selfish, like it feels like the rules have changed. I'm out. In ministry, I didn't know serving would be so frustrating. It feels like the rules have changed, and so I'm out. But, but commitment has courage even when circumstances in our mind have changed. And let me just say this, and the story of Joshua reminds me, keeping our commitment is never convenient, is it? It certainly wasn't for Joshua, was it? When he gets the call that the Gibeonites are surrounded by five other armies, and so in the middle of the night, he marches all night and is there as the sun comes up, 25 miles, a marathon, literally march. It's never convenient. Let me say this. There is a difference between our interest and our commitments. Does that make sense? There's a difference between my interest and my commitments. Let me try to explain it to you this way. Fishing is an interest for me. I'm interested in fishing, but I'll be honest, I'm 51 years old, and I don't fish unless it's above 50 degrees any longer, right? Because that's not convenient. If it's raining, I'm not going any longer, right? I don't have to, right? So I'm not as mad at them as I used to be. So that's an interest in my life. Some people say, you going? No, right? If it's cold and rainy and windy, I'm not going. I want it to be fairly warm and pleasant, and then I'll go. Why? Because fishing's an interest. It's not a commitment. Thursday night, I came home uh, after church, after a meeting. It's cold and it's raining. And Friday is trash day at our house. I don't know about your house. And, and so I, I come into the house, and Amy on most Thursday nights would say, hey, 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 big guy, tomorrow's trash day. And, and I don't say to her, you know what, uh, sister, I, I, don't, I don't do trash below 50 and when it's raining. I don't do that. It's not convenient to me. A man who will say that needs to be committed, Right? There's a real difference between interest and commitment. Does that make sense? Here's my point. I think one of the greatest problems we have in the church today is we've flipped these things. I think we are exceedingly committed to our interest, and I think we are just interested in our commitments. And I think if we're going to see a fresh move of God in our day, that needs to be flipped. I think it's important. Let's look at the third and final thing, and then we'll, we'll be done today. Keeping our commitments is going to take, take courage. For a young person today to say, I'm committing to keep myself pure in this overly sexualized generation is going to take courage to take a stand like that. For a businessman, a businesswoman to keep their word in an ever-changing market is going to take courage to stay in a marriage when it's difficult, when everything in you wants to run is going to take courage, but that's what commitment looks like. Secondly, keeping our commitment, you need to know it matters to God. It reflects the nature of our God. Why is this? Because our God is a promise keeper. Do you believe that about God? God keeps his promises, and when I break a promise, it doesn't reflect the nature of my God very well. So you need to understand this about the fine print of commitment. It matters to God. Because when we keep him, it shows that our God's a promise keeper. In fact, the third commandment in the series of 10 that we studied just several months ago, the third commandment uh, we said is it's not, not so much the cussing commandment, not to take the Lord's name in vain. It's really not about that. It's about the keeping commandment. 
Like, what does Exodus 20, verse 7 say, the third commandment? It says this, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. It's really a commandment about keeping our commitment, not breaking a commitment that we've made in the name of the Lord, right? Not taking that lightly. Let me show you another passage that's super helpful. Psalms chapter 15, verse 1. Listen to this passage. David says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tents? In other words, David's saying, what kind of lifestyle is a lifestyle that just you, that, that, that draws your attention, that creates intimacy with you? What does it look like to be a person like that? Who may dwell in your sacred tents? Who may live on your holy mountain? And then there's a list of these things. But one of the things that makes the list is all the way down in verse 4. Look at this. Psalms chapter 15, verse 4. When it says, someone who keeps an oath, even when it... Say it with me. Hurts. That's what commitment is. Someone who keeps an oath, even when it hurts, because keeping our commitments matter to God. It says someone who keeps an oath, even when it does not hurt, it does not change their mind. Right? Little stuff even matters to God. Thursday, there was an event taking place here in the morning. It was Daddy and Donuts. Some of you guys may be there with our three-year-olds in our weekday preschool. They had a Daddy and Donuts little breakfast. I went down there to act like I was talking to some guys that really just wanted a donut. So I went down there. It was such a cool event to see dads and just, I know not every dad could get off work and do that. I know people's schedules are different, so don't, don't, don't get angry. But I thought about my own life, and it was super convicting. There are just probably times as a father with my boys when I made a commitment to them, but something else was bigger, and I broke that commitment. And in my mind, I said, you know, that's just a little thing. <laughs> that's just a little thing, but it wasn't little to them. Because it's never little to the person that it matters to the most, right? And so I think we keep our word. We say what we mean and we mean what we say, right? It's an important thing. The scripture says that if we're faithful with the few, we'll be given much. And I'm working on that, man. Would you pray for me? I'm working on that in my life to realize there are no little things. And I'm a people pleaser. Here's where it gets so hard. I'm a people pleaser. Wednesday night's a perfect example. I'm walking around here as church is starting on Wednesday night, just saying hi to people, meeting some folks before I had a meeting. I committed to three things on Wednesday night in about a 15-minute period with people. I came in Thursday morning and told my assistant, hey, I need to put these three things on my schedule. And she said, I'm not doing it. I'm done. She said, you do this every week. I was like, you know what? I don't need this from you, sister. <laughs> no, I love her. She's been with me forever. And, and, and she says, you say yes to things, and you don't even, you don't even check. You don't even check, your, you don't even check your schedule. I said, well, I said yes to these. Could you call them and tell them I can't do it? And she said, no. <laughs> you call them. I said, I can't call them. I'm preaching on commitment this week. I can't break my commitment. I'm preaching on commitment. But it's so true. I'm, I'm, I'm just learning to stop and let my yes be Yes. Right? Because anytime I break even a smaller commitment is a reflection on the nature of our God because our God is a, is a promise keeper, right? It's an important thing. Let's look at the third and final thing today. I think I told you that last time I was dishonest. Here we go. This is the last one. Keeping our commitment is going to take courage. You believe that? We see that in this story, don't we? Keeping, keeping our commitments matters to God. Joshua understood that. There are no little things. And number three, keeping our commitments, this is so important, allows us to have days like no other. That's the language that Joshua says about this day where he and the children of Israel are victorious over five different enemies in one time, a day when the sun stood still in the middle of the day until the battle was over. It was a day like no other, but it is when you and I keep our commitments that it unleashes the power of God in your life. Can I tell you something? You will never know 
Dads, can I speak to you for a moment? You will never know the far-reaching effects of the commitments that you keep. Moms, you will never know the far-reaching effects of the commitments that you keep. College students, you will never know the far-reaching effects of the commitments that you keep. It unleashes the power of God. Let's talk about a couple just really quickly. Right, I wonder if you made this commitment. We talk about it all the time here. And there's tons that we could talk about today. I wonder if you just said, you know what? The first 15 minutes of the day belong to the Lord. I'm committing the first 15 minutes of the day to the Lord, to be in his word, to be in his presence through prayer. Because why is that so important? Because your life and my life will be uh, the sum total of the commitments we make and the commitments we keep, right? I wonder if we say the first day of the week, we're going to have our family in the house of God, worshiping the living God, come what may. We're going to keep our commitments, not when it's easy, not when it's convenient. Would you agree that following Jesus is more than just an interest? It is a commitment. You see, why is this so important? In the story of Joshua, Commitment makes even our mistakes work for us. Don't you see that? I mean, this story starts with Joshua making a foolish decision, but he honors the Lord through keeping a commitment, and commitment makes even your mistakes begin to work for you. The sun stands still. Battle is won over five consolidated enemies. And I would say this as we close. One of the greatest dangers in life for you and I is taking our spiritual commitments lightly. That's what Joshua understood. It's one of the most dangerous things that we can do is taking these spiritual commitments lightly. I want to look at one other verse and then we'll be done. Some of you are like, we looked at 800 verses today. Let's look at 801. We'll be done. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. You're going to know the backstory of this because of the work that we've done up to this point. It's a powerful passage. Now, there was a famine in the days of David. Who was David? David was the second king in the nation of Israel. After Joshua comes in, the children of Israel take possession of the land. Their first king is King Saul. After Saul, doesn't end well with Saul. After Saul is King David. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered. David's like, God, what gives? Why are we going through this period of dryness? And the Lord answered, it is because of Saul, your predecessor, the first king, and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the, help me, Gibeonites. Joshua had already made a promise, an oath before God to spare the Gibeonites but King Saul, the first king in Israel, rejected that. He didn't keep that commitment, and God sends drought. Are you going through a dry season in your life right now spiritually? Can I just ask you, if you're watching online, it's because not necessarily because of COVID, but it's just being around people right now are just not about it. Are you going through a dry season? We'll all go through dry seasons in our life spiritually. But one of the things to do when you're going through a dry season in your life is to do this. It is to check your core commitments. That's what this passage is about. It wasn't until David asked why the drought and God answers 
because Saul rejected a commitment. What about you? If you're going through a dry season in your life, would you check your core commitments? What about your commitment to Christ? A commitment to his word, a commitment to worship, a commitment to be on mission. And somebody said, well, whoa, 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 what do you mean? Listen, do you understand this? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you didn't understand it, but you've been called to make disciples with your life. That's not a suggestion. That's a calling on your life. When you committed your life to the Lord Jesus, you committed to be a disciple maker for the rest of your life. Did you understand that? And, and, and breaking that commitment brings dryness. Right? Maybe it's a commitment to your family that you're breaking because work is, is the priority in your life. Maybe it's just professional commitments, just dishonesty and playing in gray areas over and over again to try to get ahead. But a dryness has come to your soul because you haven't taken seriously these commitments to the Lord. I want to close with one final question. It's an important question. When it comes to Jesus, are you interested or committed? That's a big difference, isn't it? Because what did we say about interests? We're involved in our interest as long as it's convenient. But for some of you, if I could say this, I wonder, I'm, I'm just wondering if this hasn't been the pattern of your life that Jesus has always been an interest. And as long as it's convenient, what does that mean? As long as what God was calling me to do in his word lined up with what I wanted to do anyways, that makes sense. But as soon as it challenged me in any area of my life or inconvenienced me in any area of my life or got uncomfortable in any area of my life, I'm out. That's an interest. We're involved in our interest only when it's convenient. It's very different from a commitment. And for some of you today, maybe somebody here today, you would say, you know what? That's me. That's me. Jesus has always been an interest. But I realized for the first time in my life that he has fully committed to me. And I'm finally ready to wave the white flag and commit to him. Because interest never fully satisfies. Only commitment. Father, would you speak to us as only you can through the power of your Holy Spirit? It could penetrate through all of our rationalizations and justifications, all of our excuses, and give us a clear assessment of where we are, interested or committed. And Father, today, through your Holy Spirit, would, would you just show us the next step you're calling us to take? We'd have the courage to commit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.